welcome to everyone once again to our podcast Inside Experts and it's been a while um, and we're very grateful to our faithful for being patient with us for obvious reasons, the restart of cricket in many other parts uh, or some parts of the world where Freddie Wilde is located, one of the three wise men on our podcast uh, and Tom Moody of course who in times past I would say was stuck in Western Australia down under, but he's a few rooms down the corridor from me here in Port of Spain, Trinidad. Freddie, let me say welcome to you, Junior, once again. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bish. Thanks for the introduction. It has been a while. We've all been busy doing various things, watching cricket, enjoying the return of live cricket. But yes, we are back and we endeavour to try and do a podcast once a month now, not the once a week that we did during lockdown, with a bit more going on in the world of cricket. And hopefully we can educate and, and provide some insight every now and then to cricket fans around the world. So no, it's good to be back and good to be chatting you both. Tom, um, you're right down the road from me. We're going to be talking fast bowling, the rise of fast bowling in the longest format of the game. Um, good to have you here in Trinidad. As always, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Bish. And hi, Freddie. Look, it's good to be here. I'm not sure what room number you're in because we're not allowed out of our room that often, but um, it, <laughs> uh, it is good to be back on the road and back involved in the game. Um and uh, you know we're sort of one week into the to the to the CPL, which has I think been a, a real positive week of good cricket, considering a lot of the players have been out of live action for a number of months, and mm. uh, they've seemed to have taken to the game like ducks to water. Right. So just a reminder, a quick reminder to our listeners that it's going to be spread out a little bit, as Freddie said, once a month, perhaps on some really topical issues. And we found that with the West Indies and Pakistan and England, uh, Freddie, there are some numbers that you've come up with that illuminate a certain pattern in test match cricket and fast bowling over the last few years. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, to anyone who's followed test cricket, uh, you know, remotely closely over the last few years, the dominance of pace bowling has been very evident. And that's not just um, among the countries you mentioned, England, Pakistan, West Indies, but all countries nowadays seem to have one, two, three, four, five really good pace bowlers. Uh, so I had a look at the numbers and sort of tried to ascertain how the era that we're in right now compares to eras of years gone by. And what I did is I grouped uh, periods by three-year blocks. So in this case, I'm looking at 2018, 2019, and 2020. And the pace bowling average in those three years is just 26.09 runs per wicket. Now, that is the third lowest average in a three-year block since the, since the Second World War. So we are in a period of, uh, of uh, play in Test cricket where pace bowlers are dominating to a historic degree. The only two three-year blocks to see lower averages are both in the 1950s. So we can almost lump those two as one era. So since the 1950s, pace bowlers have never dominated to such a degree as they are right now. And then what I also did is I had a look at how that compares to spin bowling averages, because perhaps pace bowling averages are low because averages full stop are low. But actually, that isn't the case. Spin bowlers are averaging 341 in this period, which is mid-range, really, for spinners in the post-war period. And the difference between pace bowling averages and spin bowling averages of around eight runs is also a historic high. There are a few three-year blocks 
with slightly larger gaps. But essentially, pace bowlers are dominating spin bowlers to, again, a historic degree. And the last thing I then looked at was why that is. So averages are the product of how quickly wickets are taken and also how fast runs are scored. We know those two things as strike rate or bowling strike rate and bowling economy rate. Now, runs are being scored as a fairly typical rate. We've seen, obviously, since the great Australian side of the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, run rates in test cricket have risen slightly. So run rates, are, run rates are maintaining that sort of quite healthy level. The reason why averages are so low is because wickets are being taken faster than ever. So the strike rate in the three-year period identified 2018 to 2020 of just 52 balls per wicket is the lowest of any three-year block since the Second World War. And when you look at other three-year blocks, uh, the other very low strike rates have all come in the last four years. So the primary reason why pace bowlers are dominating is that they're taking wickets faster than ever before. And I suppose that's the basis for our discussion today. Pace bowling averages are very low because strike rates are very low. And as a trio, we're going to try and identify why that is. I find that fascinating because when I first heard of those numbers, Tom and Freddie and for listeners, I thought, ah, I look back at the 90s, I look back at the 70s. And I didn't think deeply enough about this. I just thought the golden age really would have been in that 90s where we had Waka towards the entry to the 90s, Wasim, Ambrose, Walsh, etc., etc. But when I thought deeper about it, there has been a predominance in other parts of the world. In India was a big point where India's fast bowling group for example, is now unprecedented in the number of fast bowlers, the way that they've prepared their pitches, in addition to Australia's group of Hazelwood and Stark and Cummins, etc., and the resurgence of Holder and Gabriel, uh, Kimar Roach in the Caribbean. So it may be fair to say that there are more fast bowlers of quality spread around the globe than perhaps there was uh, during the 90s and perhaps during the 70s for sure. Um, in the Caribbean, before I go to Tom, I know that, and I've said it before, there are more grass than fast bowling friendly pitches in the Caribbean. There has been a determined effort by the West Indian authorities, the authorities, the Indian authorities, perhaps even Sri Lanka as well, to produce more fast bowlers. Because say what you want about the great spinners, and there have been great spinners. When you come to the West, the Western world, if you do not have excellent fast bowlers to support the great spinners of our time, it is hard for you to get to that number one spot in the world. So I would say the ball, the pitches, the administrative direction to produce fast bowlers, amongst other things, have conditioned us to a better era of fast bowling, Thomas. Yeah, I think you've perfectly summarised that, Bish. Uh, I think all those points are absolutely spot on. The other thing that we need to consider is I think we're not seeing as many uh, drawn-out test matches um, that we have in recent past where, um, you know, we, we have teams that are prepared to hang in for the long haul for a draw, and therefore that is going to have a direct influence on bowler strike rates purely because they're 
having to bowl more balls uh, without success. I think uh, we're seeing games uh, finish in the fourth day um, and even before the fourth day at times. Uh, and that's, I think, also prompted the conversation around should we have five-day test cricket? You know, we've had that sort of around the various administrative corridors of our game thrown around whether four-day test cricket is the future. Uh, personally, I don't think it is. But, you know, you can understand why that discussion has started to happen around various cricket boards. Uh, Tom's point about the draws, what, what are your numbers going to tell us about draws in recent times? Yeah, well, no, it's, it's an excellent point. Um, you know, Moods is essentially linking the low strike rates back to um, the fact that test matches are finishing quicker and there are fewer draws. And that's absolutely right. Since 2018, again, the three-year window that we're specifically looking at, just 10% of test matches are drawn. And I haven't got um, the list up in front of me, but I can guarantee quite a few of those tests, as we saw most recently in Southampton, um, are drawn because the weather is so poor. In fact, the actual number of draws in that period, just nine draws in 87 test matches amounts to around 10%. So that, I think, taps into something which a lot of people speak about when they see a crash in batting averages, which is batting and the ability to bat time. And that often comes back, I suppose, to white ball cricket. And a lot of people look at modern test batting, I think, and say, well, uh, it's no surprise that batting averages are so low because modern batsmen aren't able to bat you know, for a long period of time or they're too aggressive. Now, before I sort of throw that over to you guys, I'll just shed some light on some numbers around that. And we can look at CrickViz at the type of shots that batsmen are playing and essentially identify whether that argument that people pose that batsmen are too aggressive is true. And uh, plainly speaking, it's not. If you look at the number of balls that batsmen are attacking in the last three years, again, that window we're talking about, and compare it to data for that starts in 2006. So we can't go back historically, but 2006 to 2016, batsmen are attacking 25% of balls in test cricket. In the last three years, that's 21%, 22%. So they're actually attacking slightly less in recent times. And now that might tie into the fact that um, they're facing better bowling, which is something we might come on to. And, and um, furthermore, if I take those numbers a bit further, if you look at the percentage of wickets that are falling to attacking shots, so you know, how often do you see a batsman sort of throw his hands at the ball outside off stump and, and perhaps people might bemoan that people or batsmen these days are too aggressive? Well, again, that doesn't necessarily add up in the numbers. In 2006, around 50% of dismissals in test cricket were to attacking shots. Now, in 2019-2020, that's down at 38%. And in fact, in 2020, for the first time in the last 14 years since records have begun on this kind of statistic, batsmen are just as likely to get out defending as they are attacking. 38% of dismissals in test cricket come from defensive shots and 38% come from attacking shots. So the idea that batsmen are being too attacking, I don't think quite holds up in the numbers. However, my last statistic I'll give you, I'm throwing a lot of numbers here. The last one I'll give you before handing over to, to you guys to discuss this is what I do think we can see in the numbers is that the quality of batsmen's defences has perhaps declined. So we have a measure at CrickViz, defensive shots per dismissal. So that's essentially, if I just kept defending every single ball I faced, how many times would I defend until I got out? Now, that's a sort of measure, if you like, of defensive solidity. 
In 2006, 2007, 2008, again, 15, 14 years ago or so, it took around 63, 64 defensive shots to get a batsman out. And in fact, that rose even higher towards the back end of the 2000s and at one point reached 76 defensive shots per dismissal. Now, in the last three years, 46, 44 and 51 shows that batsmen's defences are being breached more often. And I'd pose the question to you two whether it's not that batsmen are being too attacking, it's that their defensive games are weaker, perhaps because of the influence of white ball cricket. Tom? Yeah, look, it's a very good point. Your, your last point to me is the, the most significant one. And, and what I look at without knowing those numbers until you shared them uh, with us uh, is I feel that batting technique has been compromised over a period of time. And what we're seeing is the perfect storm where we have a huge influx of, of quality fast bowling uh, coming from all parts of our cricketing globe, meeting at the same time to where I think techniques have declined because of uh, the evolution of T20 cricket. And batsmen, when they're defending, they're not as robust in their defence and the focus around the quality of their defensive skills is not what it was in previous generations. You know, to me, the building of a technique uh, back in the day, so to speak, um, you know, in the 80s and the 90s when I was, uh, you know, a young player trying to understand and learn the game, you built your game around your defence first and then your attacking game second, where today... I think this generation is building their game the other way around. They're looking at their attacking game as their foundation. And then the afterthought is, well, I've got to keep the good one out. So I think we've done a complete flip in, the, in our approach. I'm not saying what's happening today is wrong, but I'm just saying that is the fact of where our game is at the moment and what the focus potentially is for the majority of the players coming through our system is, is the focus is I can reverse sweep. I can sweep slog. I can use my feet and hit sixes over extra cover straight down the ground, down, down at, over mid wicket. But can they keep out a beautifully bowled out swinger or a ball that seems back off a left arm quick? The question is probably not as well as they could. It on that, I've got several points to make, and I'm going to take my conservative hat off for this podcast and my political correctness um, for once in my life. Oh, um, please, please, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try my very best. I've lived carefully all my life, Tom. Um, I personally feel batting isn't as good. Um, I, I'm not saying that the game isn't more or less attractive. That's not my point, because viewers and listeners may find the game more intriguing than, say, a draw at Karachi, where Eunice can bat it out the last three days of a test match to score a double hundred per se. They're just, just using that situation. I, I feel that when I watch test match cricket, I'm not seeing guys looking to, to bat time. I'm hearing too many thoughts of if I dry up a boundary and don't give him a boundary for five overs or four overs, that he'll play a big shot. That's not the test cricket that I knew 
coming into the system. I joked with Tom the other day that my first year of, of first-class cricket, I ran into Roger Harper scoring 100, and he wasn't a great test match batsman. Gordon Greenwich scored a double 100 in my second game. And I thought at the end of my first first-class season, there has got to be a better way to earn money and to have a career because it was just too hard to get Gordon Greenwich out, for example. <laughs> but when I finished my test match career with an average of 24, I looked at that as a failure, absolute disgrace that I averaged 24 per wicket because I thought averaging 21 or 22 as Marshall and Dana and Ambrose did was the only acceptable margin of what a test match fast bowling average was supposed to be. So I'm a little bit reticent to say in any way, shape, or form. Tom, to your point to me yesterday, where there are still the great players are scoring runs, the Steve Smiths, and I'll let you get into that. But the level below that is where I'm throwing the question mark. The great players are still exceptionally good, but the level below that, I'm throwing it out there for all of those cricketers listening to this podcast. I'm not sure that you are where you are supposed to be at that level. So I'm complimenting the fast bowlers. Freddie, the technology that you guys work with helps fast bowling to be better. Umpiring certainly is better, I think, with the use of technology today in giving decisions. All of those factors play in. So I think the training methods have given us better fast bowlers. I'm not sure they're as patient, Tom, as they're supposed to be either. I'm not sure our fast bowlers are as patient as we need to be. But I wonder about the batting. I don't clearly don't believe batting at the lower levels is as good as it should be. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll just pick you up on that. And it was a, it was a conversation that we were having as uh, we were travelling down to the the Brian Lara uh, Academy Stadium, um, south of uh, Port of Spain. We've got an hour to talk through things, so it's always a <laughs> always a plenty of time to have a chat. And Freddie, the the point I was making to Bish was. I think we do have still those greats of the game with the bat. So you've got your Coley's, you've got your Smiths, you've got your Williamson's. They're your top three. Um, and you, you can you can put in Joe Root there. But to me, Joe Root sort of slid away from that group a little bit um, for whatever reasons. Maybe, you know, you've also got to accept that he's probably batting in more challenging conditions in England against the Duke ball. Um, but let's stick with the top three. But then the, the the gulf between those top players and the rest, to me, is a significant gulf. And then there's another layer underneath that, that are the players that are still trying to establish themselves as regular test players. So they're not your, your first pick players. They're the guys that are in and out of the side. Now... I think that has coincided with depth of quality with our pace bowling. So that depth of quality of pace bowling is feeding off that timeline where batting is weak in, in test cricket. And I say that with the greatest respect. Um, you know, a lot of these players are still very fine players, but we're just trying to come up with reasons why. And I think that is one of the reasons why. Um, where I've felt that in previous generations where you've drawn your numbers, I think you'll find there's greater depth 
in batting. I'll just give you a simple example of something that's just coming straight to my mind is the Australian batting lineup over the over the 90s and the early 2000s when you've got the likes of Hayden, Langer, Ponting, Martin, Mark mm. Waugh, Steve Waugh. Wow. You know, do I need to continue to go? All those players average 45 plus in test cricket, all of them. And that's just one team. So we're only talking three players over the whole of test cricket in the in, in the world. I broadly agree with everything you said. The only small caveat I'd make to that last point is they all averaged 45 in an era when I do think batting was easier as well. So it's obviously a number of factors going on there. I think batting was certainly easier in the mid-2000s or late 90s, maybe not late 90s, but mid-2000s. And that's why probably you had so many players averaging above 40. But I completely agree with your point there. I mean, broadly, you're saying that that Australian team had too many batsmen to fit in their top seven. Now, can you think of any test side right now that has a sort of wealth of options for batting. It always seems like they're scrabbling around to complete their top order, aren't they? You know, you think of players coming in and out. The only side potentially who has maybe too many players to fit in right now is India. But even then, those guys, sort of fringe guys like Prithvi Shaw or Darwan or Shubman Gill, who hasn't played a test match yet, but these guys are highly regarded, but we haven't actually seen them sort of kick on and nail down a spot yet. So I completely agree with that. I think there are probably fewer elite level batsmen now. But again, that does all, it all links in together to the, the various factors at play. And I do think right now we have to adjust our expectations as to what an elite level batsman is. Averaging 40, I think now is the 45 of 15, 20 years ago because of conditions are more difficult which I think something will come on to but also because we have a lot of very good bowlers around at the moment one statistic that I'd just like to bring into this debate and this is quite an advanced measure that we have at Crickviz but it essentially is a measure of how difficult batting is and, and what we do is we look at ball tracking data that we get from all around the world and using that data we're able to identify each individual delivery bold and we get tracking data from everywhere around the world and essentially say how good was that ball and using that data at the moment um, we can say that the reason why or one of the big reasons why uh, batsmen are getting out more often is that simply they are facing more difficult bowling the expected strike rate of deliveries and that's the, the measure it's quite advanced in 2006 was 64 balls per wicket now using ball tracking data so independent of the batsman it doesn't matter who's facing it an average player would get out every 55 balls faced so you can see there a drop of around 10 runs in the number of balls we expect an average player to survive based on the quality of those deliveries. Now, if you compare that expected strike rate to the actual strike rate, you're essentially saying how well are batsmen doing at coping with those deliveries? And it completely agrees, Moods, with what you're saying and Bish, what you're saying. Bowling is very good now. The expected strike rate is very low. But batsmen are still getting out slightly more often than we would expect based on the deliveries that they're facing. Um, I'll put up the actual numbers when we tweet this out and, and put it up online. I'll, I'll, I'll put the numbers there in full for listeners to have a look at. It's very interesting. But essentially, it shows that over the last 10, 15 years, yes, pace bowling has got a lot better. But batsmen probably could and should be dealing with it slightly more effectively. And I suppose that that begs the question as to why and moods you, you you touched on it there perhaps the advent of white ball cricket has compromised the foundations of batsman's techniques before i throw that back to you tom um i'm not sure 
and I'm sorry if I missed it. I can hear a moan and a groan from the current batting generation. I can hear my good friend Scott Styrus saying to me in my ears, Bish, the technology, the observation of or the globalization of technology and the scrutiny batsmen are under technically is a significant part of what we have today, Tom, where we did not have as much of it in the 90s. We did not have it in the 70s. So batting is so much more difficult as you move from one match or one series to another because everybody around the world knows after two games what your limitations are, what your faults are. Respond to that for me. So you're blaming Freddie? <laughs> yes. So, Get rid so of the, him. Yeah, so the likes of Freddie and his uh, colleagues are uh, largely to blame for the reason we're having this podcast. <laughs> no, <laughs> we've dug no. up this, we've dug up this uh, really, really intriguing uh, is statistical evidence around fast bowling. But it's, it, in all seriousness, it, it's a really, really good point. And I can also hear the likes of Scott Cyrus and, 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 and other real students of our game uh, you know, making that making that point, and it's a really valid point because there was a window of a season a batsman had before the grapevine of our game got out, whether it be domestically, if you are playing first class cricket, or internationally. Probably took a little bit longer internationally. Actually, it took probably longer than a year for that grapevine to really connect. But domestically, it was about a year. Where today. You have a window of a week from a batting perspective. One week. You, I reckon you've got a window of a week where if you're playing from one game to the next and you manage as a, as a batsman to bat for, let's say, 50 to 100 balls, there's enough evidence there for you to dissect the technique, dissect habits and behaviours to be able to formulate a plan to be able to try to undermine that opponent, where previously it was ages long. So it is a lot harder for batsmen if you're looking at it from that point of view because, you know, the technology now is wonderful. The expertise that's on offer, mm-hmm. uh, the complement coaches, complement players is second to none and getting exactly. better and getting better and better, Bish. It's because the likes of Freddie have got competition out there. There's other companies out there trying to outdo the Crick Vizzers of the world and wanting to be recognised as the superior um, support to any team, backroom team. Um, So I I never really thought about it until I'm talking through it now, how critical that has been. And I just... It's hard to put a measure on what number it is, but you, you you think from a bowling point of view against a batting point of view, the 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 support of of your analyst and that backroom team is going to benefit the undermining of a batsman more than the undermining of a bowler. I'll leave that with you, Freddie. 
I completely agree with, with all of that. It's almost like we're in a sort of analytics arms race with different companies and, and individuals trying to outdo one another. Can I, can I write that down and use it at some point, Freddie? An analytical <laughs> arms race, and I'll reference you whenever I use this anywhere I'm broadcasting next time. Absolutely. Go for it. But, but what we see is, is, is as a result, you know, the, that competition pushes everyone to improve. And just an example of how, um, you know, moods you said a week it takes to figure out a player. I mean, recently I was working for Scott on the England-Pakistan series and in advance of the series we were doing some research on the Pakistani players and on the England players and one of the players who cropped up was, was Abid Ali who's obviously he played a couple of test matches um, prior to the England series but he was at the start of his test career and he'd made a good start to his test career he scored a couple of centuries now I hadn't watched him bat in the tests that he had played I didn't watch it live but that didn't matter because what I could do is go into our archives and watch the footage that we do have and then start looking at things as to how he got out and things that he did. And one thing I noticed is that twice he got out, pinned LBW by a ball that sort of nipped back off the scene. I then looked at his domestic record and put together the fact that he gets out LBW quite often. You then slow down the footage, if you like, of the balls where he's getting out. And you see that perhaps he plants his front foot a bit too early. And I actually tweeted, I'm sort of singing my own praises here, but I tweeted before the series, I think he's a bit of a candidate for, for nip backers. Lo and behold, on the first day of the series, Joffre Archer Joffre runs Archer. And, and gets him with a nip back. And now that's not to say um, I, I sort of had some expertise myself. It's essentially putting together yeah. the different pieces of the puzzle that are at your disposal. And now there are people, you know, I was just working for Sky and Sky do it excellently. But, you know, the England analysts will be doing even more work than I am doing there. And, you know, you think they'll uncover even more weaknesses and things to attack. So it absolutely is something you've got to factor in when considering this. Um, I talked, I you know, mentioned the statistics there about the batsmen we think are at Crickvist slightly underperforming relative to an, uh, what we think they should be doing. But maybe that's because, as you said, in the last few years, never before are weaknesses exposed so quickly. And just one last point, a, a brilliant example of that has been the rise in recent times of right arm quicks going round the wicket to left handers. It's a tactical trend that sort of swept the test game. Now, Stuart Broad is someone who previously, until about 2015, struggled against left-handers. Now, he looked at some data with, with the England analyst that indicated he would be better served going round the wicket and forcing the left-handers to play more often. Now, he's done that, and it has completely transformed his career. He is now dominating left-handers, as we know with David Warner and many other lefties around the world. And that, I think, is almost the most clear example of how data analysis can impact the game Right arm is going round the wicket to left-handed batsman is now done all over the world. Whereas previously, Andrew Flintoff did it a bit, Andre Nell did it a bit in sort of the early 2000s, but very few bowlers did it. Uh, and now it's, you know, almost every other bowler does it, if not more. And I think, yeah, it's impossible to ignore the influence of data on, on the crash of batting averages worldwide. I'm going to apologize for batsmen crying into their milk over the first half of this podcast. And I'm going to say that I have some sympathy for you because we, I was just thinking of that on the fly. And it came back to me as, as to how difficult, for example, Freddie, and I, I can verify, Tom, I can, and for our listeners, I can verify Freddie's accuracy about his tweet about <laughs> that nitbacker because I was following it real time and I saw the tweet and I saw the wicket. And I thought, absolute genius, Freddie Wilde. But credit goes to your computer rather than you. Yeah. Um, yes. So are we saying then, because just, and I, I'm, I try to get the word, Tom, I look at Glenn McGrath, and one of the things that I, 
I still want from the bowlers that I'm seeing, and Stuart Broad does it brilliantly. Jimmy Anderson, for example, does it brilliantly. The ability to hit an area time and time and time again, like McGrath did back in the day, like Angus Fraser did back in the day, like Kirtley Ambrose did back in the day, for example. Do we still have as many bowlers with that standard as Ishan Sharma arrived at that place? Um, is Shaheen Afridi going to get to that place? Is Pat Cummins there? Is Josh Hazelwood there? Yes, I do. I do think they're there. Um, I think uh, Pat Cummins, who's now ranked uh, through the ICC uh, current test fast bowling rankings as number one, uh, I think he uh, has that skill. Um, our bowls at a very good pace and is relentless on what I'd call a dinner plate uh, length, which is just just bashing that length that a batsman's questioning whether he can get a decent stride forward to defend, but always finds it hard and finds himself playing from the crease. And that's why I think Pat Cummins quite often uh, will bowl some top-order batsmen because of that ball just seeming back because they're left on the crease. They're not in a strong position on that front foot. Um, Hazelwood, that's part of his makeup. A lot of people in Australia would call him, you know, a baby McGrath. Um, very similar, same height, six foot six, hits the, hits the deck, you know, hard off that sort of awkward length. And I think if you look around the world, uh, I think we do have bowlers... You mentioned Shahina Fridi. I think even though at his tender age, he is achieving that now. I think just watching him in this test series against England, I've been really impressed with his patience because that's all it is. There is skill involved because you've got to be able to be consistently balanced through the crease and have the right rhythm to be able to, to execute that, you know, that consistency. But to me, he, he, he has shown every bit of that. And I think that's what we've also seen with his early success in Test cricket. Um, Abbas also from um, yeah, Pakistan, Abbas, along with, yeah. Yeah, along with uh, Philander uh, from South, uh, Africa. South Africa, very similar bowlers in that they're just relentless bowling, that wobble seam delivery on a perfect length. You know, a bit like Sean Pollock did back in our day. Right. You know, Pollock was brilliant at, at, at that. So I think we do have the bowlers. I think we probably have more bowlers uh, than what we've had in previous uh, generations. That's probably why we're getting the numbers we're getting. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just at one point, you know, earlier we talked about how there used to be lots of or the batting depth or the quality of bats when there was a big depth of them. And now there's maybe three or four. I think what we are seeing is with the bowling, there's a huge amount of bowling depth. There's a lot of, we're not talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe very good bowlers. We've got possibly right now playing test cricket. There are maybe a dozen bowlers who at the end of their career are going to probably retire as, if not all-time greats, then greats of their country. I mean, I'm just going to run through the test bowler rankings here. Um, Pat Cummins, Stuart Broad, Neil Wagner, I think probably is going to be a, a New Zealand great. Tim South, a New Zealand great. Jason Holder is heading in that direction for West Indies. Kahiso Rabada, he's got pretty much, I think, the best strike rate of any bowler uh, in the modern era. Mitchell Stark, again, left arm swings at high pace. 
probably going to go down as an Australian great. Mohamed Abbas, Jasper Brumra, Trent Bolt, Josh Hazelwood. None of these players I don't think I've mentioned yet will not go into the echelons of great bowlers from their country. Mohamed Shami, Kemar Roach, we saw him take his 200th test wicket, a modern great. James Anderson, haven't even mentioned him, at, down at number 15 in the world rankings. He's about to take his 600th test wicket. Um, then you've got guys like Chris Woke, Shannon Gabriel, Umesh Yadav, and that's what I mean by the depth. These guys are, those guys there that I've just mentioned, Wokes, Gabriel, or maybe to a lesser extent Gabriel, but Wokes and Yadav don't always start for uh, England and for India, yet they are phenomenal bowlers returning brilliant averages. So, um, you know, we cannot have this debate about, you know, why we're in a great era for fast bowling and ignore just simply the fact that there are very, a number of very, very good bowlers, many of whom will go down as all-time greats of the game. Freddie, um, conditions, how, how challenging is that? Well, yeah, and it's a massive factor. You know, we spoke at the top about how this is, well, Moods um, used the words perfect storm. Uh, and he was speaking there in reference to the fact that we have a number of batsmen perhaps who have quite weak defensive techniques. And as I've just listed, a number of very good bowlers. I think a third factor there is conditions. Now, again, and we've got the ability at Crickviz to look at the ball tracking data and try and assess how, at least in the modern era, we should underline that we've got ball tracking data since around 2005, how conditions have changed. And again, so the, the three-year period I identified at the beginning as being particularly low, I've had a look at the numbers and seen how the, the ball has swung and seemed in that period compared to the sort of decade or so before. Um, and it's very interesting. What it shows is that worldwide, the ball is actually swinging slightly less in recent years. On average, it's swinging around 7% less in the last three years to the 10% to the 10 years prior to that. However, in the most recent three-year block, it's seeming around 10% more. Now, it's almost basic physics to say that seam is more dangerous than swing because it happens later. So, you know, but at high pace, obviously, it's, you know, all of it's very difficult to deal with, I'm sure. I can't say having not faced it, but seam is happening after the ball is pitched and swing is happening before the ball is pitched. So whilst we're seeing slightly less swing, we're seeing a lot more seam movement. And I think seam movement is particularly difficult to deal with. I mean, I can think of a number of players in recent years who've come into the test format and really struggle with the ball. You know, I mentioned Abid Ali, but he's obviously at the start of his career, but really struggle with the ball seeming in either direction. Remember Aaron Finch had a big issue with that. KL Rahul had a big issue with that. Johnny Bairstow, Jason Roy. Again, this goes back to discussions we've had before about when the ball starts to move, modern techniques I don't think are quite equipped to deal with it. And in Bangladesh, in England, in India, in Sri Lanka, in the West Indies, we've seen a lot more seam in recent years. Uh, maybe not quite so much swing. In the West Indies, who've adopted the Duke's ball, we've seen it swing more. But broadly, and this isn't exclusively, because Moods, before we jumped on rec and recorded, you said how you didn't think this is the case in Australia. And actually, notably, Australia's pitches are seeming slightly less in recent years. So the trends mm. are all different around the world. But broadly speaking, I think we can say that pitches in the last four or five years have been tougher for batting than they were in the mid-2000s. Yeah, I, I, I did mention the Australian thing. And I think Australia, uh, the issue in Australia, I think, has been the drop-in surfaces yeah. at the stadium. So we have had a very different experience which is new to, you know, we, you know, the history of our game where we've normally had on our cricket stadiums, our cricket ovals, massive blocks where those, 
you know, those wickets are there and are there for the duration of the year, where in Australia we have these drop-in surfaces. And I think they do behave differently. There's no question of that. Whether they swing less or swing more or seem less or more, I obviously don't have that that uh, that knowledge. But I, when you were just, just you know, chatting through that, Freddie, I, I was trying to get my head around whether it was to do with the making of the ball, whether techniques around making of the duke or the kookaburra ball, which are the two the, the two main balls that are used around the globe, is different. I know that certainly the kookaburra ball was traditionally handmade at the mm. top level. Now they're machine made. Has that made a difference? Have we got a more elevated seam, um, which is allowing the bowlers to get that additional seam movement? Uh, has there been a real focus uh, and directive to those ball companies to to increase the seam size or the the durability of the seam, which is you know which is helping those numbers? Uh, again, I don't have the answers to, to to that because I haven't got on the phone to Cookerborough or to to Duke to ask him those questions. But to me, something I have noticed though is is that uh, we don't see classic unless you're playing in England you don't see a lot of classical swing bowling as much as we used to. Uh, the two venues that you do see as genuine swing bowling is in New Zealand and England. So the Trent Bolts and the Tim Southies of the world are at their very best when they're swinging it around corners and are lethal. And obviously Anderson and co in England also carved out incredible careers on the back of the moving ball in England. Before Vish, you go to that, Freddie, just Vish, before you go to that. You, actually, just off the back of it, I'm interested yeah. in um, talking of seam movement, wobble seam. Has that yeah. always been something or is that something that's new and come into the game a lot more? Because a lot of bowlers talk about it now. And I wonder, you know, moods rightly, they're raising the issue of how the ball is made. I wonder if bowlers are better at finding seam movement now due to, you know, did, was that was wobble seam something that was around when, when you were playing? Not not as much. I remember having a chat with Vasper Drakes, who bowled a great wobble seam, uh, and, and Vasper sort of played towards what, the middle or the back end of my career. He bowled a lot of wobble seam, whereas the generation that I came up with, the upright seam was the main thing. So I think there's definitely a lot more wobble seam being perfected. If, if that is a word that can be applied to wobble seam, because no bowler can tell me that they know where a wobble seam is going to go, which direction it's going to go. So perfecting it, um, I suppose, is perhaps the wrong word. Um, so I think there's a lot more science going into it. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in a conundrum, fellas, because, and, I, and I'm going to throw this out. I just want to give New Zealand a shout out as well. Tom, you would know better than I would. New Zealand have more quality fast bowling as a group than I think if I go back to my good friend Danny Morrison's era, where it was Danny and someone else. Um, it was Sir Richard Hadley and Ewan Chatfield and not much else. Have the pitches changed in New Zealand and become more bowler friendly in the last few years? Um, I would argue yes, based on what I saw on tape from uh, perhaps back in the day, subject to correction. I'm in a conundrum because, as I mentioned before, when I look at my failure of a 24 bowling average per wicket and I see guys 
averaging 28 and 26 and 27. I'm not, I'm serious. I'm being serious. Total failure. Now, and that is more acceptable. I'm marrying that now. Tom made a great point the other day to me, and I think he made it before this podcast. We don't have many of the Pujara innings, the Dom Sibley innings. In fact, when Dom Sibley was setting up that 150 against the West Indies, there were people saying he's going too slow. That's not the, the game that should be played. You're wasting time. Tom, you said Pujara got dropped for batting too slowly here in Trinidad about two years ago. Whereas it would have been praised for the Jeff Boyka type innings in years gone by, it is now an anomaly in the modern game. So as we go from one era, Freddie and I, correct me if I'm wrong, the golden age of batting, a golden age of batting was perhaps into the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, flat pitches. Will it take some time now with a more C, move, C movement for techniques to adjust to that? And it eventually will come around again. So I'm all over the place with this. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I'm going to throw that into the lap of Tom. Well, I, I'll just, I, I'm going to sort of jump in very quickly and throw it to Moods, who's the coach on this one. I would say, yeah. is it fair? to say that perhaps, yes, bat, the, the, the relationship between batting strength and bowling strength is almost an ongoing conversation. As you said, batting was very strong at the start of the 21st century. We're now having bowlers come back. And typically, you would, I think, see batsmen respond as well. I yeah. think a spanner has been thrown in the works in the form of T20 and 50-over cricket, right. that fewer players are specialising in Red Bull. And this goes back to a podcast that we've done before, really. Um, on the challenges of adapting to different formats. And I think, you know, it's interesting there. Dom Sibley, you mentioned. Che Pajara, you mentioned. Neither of those guys play white ball cricket. So I wonder whether the conversation will evolve and the batsmen will fight back when teams begin picking red ball specialists more, perhaps. And uh, Tom, just to preface your answer, remember I threw it to you yesterday and I said, culturally, culturally, mm. our thinking as a society are we putting too much pressure of expectation on test match batsmen to score and get the game moving on and having more of a negative impact as much as technology and pitches? Well, I think that that, that is, that, that is the, the significant difference is that the game is promoted through the excitement and the, and the speed of the game more than the durability, the durability and the and 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 the guts and determination that's required to bat through a day or a day and a half. So we're looking at a an era which is only going to be accelerated further as as time unfolds, where uh, the the people that are selling the game are going to sell the the jazz in the game. They're not going to you know they're right. not going to sell the slow burn, which is your test cricket. Whether we like it or not, you're going to sell what makes money. Right. And what, what makes money in our game is white ball cricket, not test cricket. So why, while we want to preserve test cricket and keep, keep its relevance and keep it interesting, unfortunately, we're not going to be promoting uh, a Pajara or a, Sib a Sibley as much as we're going to be promoting uh, a Pollard or a Russell or a Warner or a Bairstow. 
these these players that you know set the the, the stadiums alight with their one day or T20 cricket. I think careful, that's, Tom. That's, careful, careful, careful. I'm being naughty here. Careful. Are you phasing out Test cricket? No, 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 no. We've had this discussion before. I think we need to preserve Test cricket. I think I used that word. Um, we need to preserve it, but we need to understand mm-hmm. that its place is where it's at is because of what's happening with T20 cricket around the world and what's happening with 50 over cricket and where the revenue is generated. I'd just like to add, this is a slightly slightly moving the conversation away um, to something else, but at one key point before we sort of try and wrap up and conclude where we're at, around the rise of pace bowling, and I think we really should mention, and Bish has sort of touched on it, but India being a pace bowling factory that they are right now, the number of good quicks that they have, I think is a massive factor in contributing to the lower averages. India play quite a lot of test cricket at the moment. Their pace bowlers are averaging 23, which is the best in the world. Now, I'm not as old as, as you two or as old. I haven't seen cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Careful, ageism. <laughs> just, just be careful, Freddie. <laughs> I haven't seen cricket going back a long time, but I know that India is not renowned for producing fast bowlers. And I just had a quick look at their averages Uh, by decade. And in the 1950s, the 1960s, India were averaging 44. Um, Their pace bowlers were averaging 44 runs a wicket. Now that's 20 runs more than they're averaging now. And I think just simply the fact that a team who plays as much test cricket as India and doing as well as they are with with quick bowling is going to be a massive factor in, in, in encouraging or dragging pace bowling averages down, but also then encouraging other teams to think, ah, we, if India can sort it out, given their pitches at home, we can do it too. And I think that's having a massive influence as well. And just on the back of that, you need to applaud the foresight of India 25 years ago through the MRF Foundation, mm. getting Dennis Lilly, mm. yeah. Yeah. part of their fast bowling program to put together an academy in Chennai and build a factory of young fast bowlers. So the beneficiaries of that are playing test cricket now and the generation before that were also beneficiaries of that. And I think what we've seen over a long period of time, and it has taken a long period of time, is a cultural shift in the acceptance and elevation and praise of the, 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 you know, the, the, the bowling of fast in the subcontinent where it was always seen give the fast bowler two overs and then we've got spin for the rest of the day. Uh, The second part to that is the BCCI. uh, I know uh, because I've had conversations with a few Indian players and past players over my time in India during the IPL, there was a clear directive for their Ranji trophy for the surfaces Mm. to be more, um, more fast bowler friendly. So they were leaving more grass on a lot of the first-class surfaces. So they were very aware it was an area of their game they needed to improve. So it complemented the long-term vision with the MRF Foundation, Fast Bowling Foundation with Lilly, which is now currently being run by Glenn McGrath, um, and also the the foresight of the BCCI with their first-class surfaces. Right, so as as we wind down here now, because it's a fast bowling topic, uh, before I throw the final thoughts out there, I, I want to give the West Indies a, 
a little limelight here because I was so excited, Freddie, during this CPL. And this predates CPL, to be honest. I've talked about this over the last two years. I, I just drop a list to send to a fast bowling coaching colleague of mine based in the UK. Shimar Holder, who we saw during this CPL bowler final over, under-19 World Cup winner. Um, Alzari Joseph. Odin Smith, who was a, a, an under-19 winner as well. Keon Harding, who Stuart Broad has a lot of time for publicly by his own admission. Um, O'Shane Thomas, uh, Jaden Seals, who we saw in the under-19 World Cup. is the kid Anderson Phillip, 23 years old. We hadn't seen him yet on, on the international spotlight. Obed McCoy, left-arm seamer, not outrightly quick, who's struggling. There's a lovely group of West Indian fast bowlers coming through. And as Tom pointed out, the MRF Foundation, we've had Lily Shaw and Loughborough as academies in the UK for in recent times. We've had what Tom, the academy uh, in the in Australia for some time. Um, a lot of academies have sprung up in different countries, producing specifically fast bowlers. So I think there's a science now into fast bowling, which is excellent to have. And I'm going to throw to you guys for the last words. Where does that leave us? Because I'm confused now that batting is suffering. Uh, bowling is usurping. Fast bowling is usurping everything. But we've made criteria as to why this is happening. Where does fast bowling go from here? Can it get better? Or will we see the tables turning shortly i i think i'll just jump in quickly first because in terms of sort of broad comparison of eras is a little bit more difficult for me but why it's happening now i think um it's a culmination of factors as we've talked about uh throughout the show today we've got a brilliant crop of pace bowlers uh the, the point you've just raised about um academies and sports science and the management of workloads now is is superb and i think that that helps too um we've seen def weaker defensive techniques and We've seen conditions really helping fast bowlers and it's a, a mood set it at the top i think it's the perfect description is the perfect storm has come together and fast bowlers are very dominant for that reason How, as to where we're going to go over the next few years given the age of some of these quicks mm. the likes of pat cummins and jasper brumra and kahiso rabada and nasim shah and shaheen shah afridi i think we could see at least the averages or low averages being maintained if not potentially still dropping a little bit um, I don't think they'll continue to drop for long, though, because I think there is an awareness now. I think we're seeing this in England in particular, that you need to select old school test match batsmen. And that's the solution for me to dealing with this rise in fantastic fast bowlers. The reason, as we said, right at the top of the show, averages are low because strike rates are low. Wickets are falling often. So you need batsmen who can bat time. And I think England in the last year, we've seen a clear move away from the likes of Jason Roy and Johnny Bairstow to a lesser degree and towards the likes of Dom Sibley, Ollie Pope, people who are first-class Red Bull players. And I think when more and more countries adopt that approach to test match selection, I think we'll see the test batsmen fight back. Yeah, look, well put, Freddie. I, I, I think that uh, we will see... Um, it'd be a challenge over the next few years but for the for the reasons you've just articulated. But I think also nature has a, 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 a its its way with just balancing things out. And I think we, we have cycles in sport 
And currently we're in a cycle where we clearly have a, a very strong battery of fast bowling around our cricketing globe. Uh, but, you know, I, I also feel that, you know, there's no reason why we won't see another cycle of more than just the top three uh, world-class batsmen on display. We may have a cycle where we've got six of them, if not eight. Um, at the moment, you've got your Coley, Smith and uh, Williamson that are your real standouts. There's no reason why we can't have six or eight of them in our next discussion in three years' time. But um, you look, I think that the point that really has stuck with me uh, before I let, uh, uh, let you go is the point around technology. And I, I just don't think you can underplay that. I think that teams are becoming smarter around the use of technology and digging deeper than the game's ever been dug before to be able to just look for those little hairline fractures in, in any sort of player's game, whether it be a batsman or a bowler, which is creating um, that challenge for, for players to grow and grow rapidly in the game. So that, that's the ultimate conclusion, that the mining of data is having a deleterious effect on the averages, and therefore people like Freddie need to be gotten rid of by batsmen <laughs> on the hunt for his kind and eradicating them from the sport. Um, thank you very much to our listeners for once again being patient with us. And as always, Freddie will have the last word. And it's not always a good word from our podcast this morning based on what we've discovered about CritViz, et cetera, et cetera. It's great to be back. Uh, we're going to space it out a bit just as a reminder because cricket is starting to re-energize once again, live cricket. Freddie, last word is yours. Yeah, well, guys, I echo what Fish said there. Thanks a lot for listening. Um, you can find us on all of the main podcasting platforms. And, and when you do listen, if you... If you enjoyed it, then please leave a, a review and a rating. And if you have any questions, then fire them over to us on Twitter and they could potentially prompt our future episodes. So no, it's, it's been great to be back and we'll be back monthly. Thanks a lot for listening.